Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic Hark now hear the sailors The Mystic cry. Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. Through the summer months, I'm offering something a little lighter than our usual fare. This is because I need to take a break from producing a weekly program, and because you might enjoy some summertime storytelling to take with you onto the back deck or out on a road trip. Each week, I'll be reading from How the Light Gets In, a collection of my short stories published by the Anglican Book Centre back in 1999. Despite my urge to do some major rewriting, I've tried to leave these stories pretty much as they were, except where I couldn't help myself. I'll release two stories a week, one on Sunday and one on Thursday. If you don't want to miss a story... Be sure to subscribe on whatever format you use for your podcasts. And while you're at it, give the podcast a rating. That helps spread the word. I hope you enjoy these homespun tales as we all take our summer sun. Chicken Soup I was sitting down to lunch the other day when the telephone rang. Out of the blue, there was Father David at the other end. We're not close. We greet each other as if we're close, but we know each other hardly at all. Whatever bond we share comes from his serving the parish I used to serve, the rural parish of St. Jude's. He suspects that I hear about him from my former parishioners, which I do, and I suspect that he hears about me, at least from those who still remember me at all. Neither of us really wants to know for sure what people are saying. I asked him how things were going. He said I'd be interested to know that the annual Hog Fest was coming up. There was all the usual excitement including the not-so-subtle jockeying for position amongst the merry widows who organized the event, from which this year Mavis McTeer seems to have emerged on top. This means that the women will likely have Elf Brown play his accordion up in the church while guests wait to be ushered to a table down in the hall. We permitted ourselves a conspiratorial chuckle over the familiar politics. But this was not the reason for his call. He said he was calling to get my advice. Had I, while I was at St. Jude's, ever taken a funeral service for farm animals? Well, not a funeral exactly, more a memorial service, but the bodies would be present. It took me a moment to get oriented to his question. If it were anyone else, I would have suspected a joke was coming. But Father David is an earnest young man, 
To whatever extent he has a sense of humor, he seems to regard it as little more than an obligatory social grace. The practical joke, the belly laugh, these would be quite unimaginable coming from Father David. I told him I wasn't exactly sure what he meant. He meant chickens. Had I ever been called upon to do some kind of memorial service for chickens? No, that had not been part of my experience at St. Jude's. Perhaps there were places where they did that kind of thing, but I really wouldn't know about it. Was someone actually asking for this? It turned out, someone was. Marilyn DeCary, she pronounces it Mary Lynn, is not a member of St. Jude's. She and her husband Sterling moved up to the area a few years ago, buying and renovating the old schoolhouse out by the 5th Side Road and 11th Concession. The schoolhouse was in use up until my time there when a change in the school bus route removed the necessity of a school out in the middle of nowhere. By the time the for sale sign appeared, I guess it was looking pretty run down. Tall grass had grown up around the foundation, and bats had moved into the belfry. It must have taken real imagination to see in that dilapidated old place a possible country home. But imagination is what Mary Lynn has plenty of. Sterling is a corporate executive, a senior vice president of a large marketing firm in the city. He has been taking a gradual retirement from the pressures of the business world and has managed to negotiate a new position with the firm as a kind of mentor for the up-and-coming junior executives. It was a smart move. Those sassy young men and women had more energy than he did, and their ideas, culled from graduate business degrees and countless motivational seminars, worried him with their smart-assed novelty. So, strategically, he placed himself directly in their path, several steps above them on the corporate ladder. Mary Lynn is ten years Sterling's junior, and not your usual picture of a corporate wife. She used to be a kindergarten teacher and more recently taught art at a community college. She has been letting her long, dark hair go gray naturally, and it cascades thick and unruly down past her shoulder blades. In she would bounce, unannounced, to Sterling's office in her long skirt, billowy blouse and sandals, presenting without ceremony a bunch of spring flowers to Angela, her husband's pretty receptionist. Mary Lynn has what some would call a sunny disposition. There are two hills for every valley, she says. She has on many occasions surprised their friends with acts of unaffected munificence. At one dinner party, she presented every guest with a personalized wooden salad bowl made by her art students, a memento of their fellowship together. Sterling laughed louder than was really necessary as he hugged her shoulders, calling her his hippie bride. She and Sterling have no children of their own. This was at Sterling's insistence. He is the father of two grown sons from a previous marriage and had no intention of repeating that role when he married Mary Lynn, who had never had children of her own. His retirement scheme included selling their large home in the suburbs and replacing it with both a farm in the country and a condo in the city. They were to live up at the farm, which he tended to refer to as hers, the condo would be for when he had early morning meetings at the office or for when they wanted to spend a weekend in the city. It's turned out that he is working about as much as ever, staying overnight at the condo most nights now. 
Mary Lynn, left increasingly on her own up at the old schoolhouse, has thrown herself into creating her dream home. Chickens were not originally part of the plan. In fact, apart from her cat, Marmalade, which she pronounces Marmalade the French way, Mary Lynn had not considered having animals on her farm at all. She envisaged something more akin to a thatch-roofed cottage set in the midst of an overgrown English country garden. An array of wild flowers as you approached the house from the drive, bright hollyhocks, purple fireweed, white lupin, and then fragrant climbing roses clinging to a trellised porch as you stepped up to the front door. She cultivated roots and herbs and hung them to dry in her country kitchen. But when she saw the ten dozen chicks down at Maddie and Fern's food and hardware, she was smitten. Tufts of yellow fluff scurrying around beneath the heat lamp, peeping as they bumped into one another. They were little balls of living sunshine, she thought, and bought the whole lot of them. The schoolhouse had a lean-to at the back that had served at one time as a small tool shed. If Sterling was so inclined, it would have been a great place to hang some power tools, oil a chainsaw, or give a tune-up to a riding mower. But he had been giving away his tools over the years. He took no satisfaction in physical labor, preferring to exercise his option of hiring those who did. Now the unpainted shed, with its padlocked door and small shuttered window, made a perfect chicken coop. Mary Lynn hung a lamp low over the middle of the dirt floor and nailed a few boards across the threshold so the chicks couldn't run out into the yard. Every day she would throw wide the door, step over the barricade, and stand in the midst of her cheeping brood as they ran to greet her, their sun-ringed goddess of plenty, casting food like a sower, giving life to her little family. Maybe it was the maternal instinct, maybe the sweet smell of the country air, but on some days the sheer joy of it almost brought tears to her eyes. Mary Lynn had not asked anything about the chicks when she bought them. Maddie had given her some instructions about keeping them warm and fed for the early weeks. He did say, though, that they were a fast-growing breed, intended for a quick trip at minimal expense to the poultry operations that supplied the fast food chains. She nodded, but all she saw were little fluffy orphans in search of a mom. By the time the chicks were reaching the equivalent of their teens, they were big enough to be let out into the open pen. Their rush to her feet was becoming more like a swarm, and she felt the pecking of their little beaks through the toes of her rubber boots. They were not as cuddly as they once were. Some seemed actually to be growing up deformed, This was confirmed the day she found the first victim of mob violence, a stunted chick with only one leg. How had she missed it, she wondered. The poor thing never stood a chance in the daily feeding frenzy. Its disfigurement must have aroused bloodlust in the others, who pecked it to death, leaving it in a small pool of blood. She noticed there were other misfits among her brood growing up unnaturally, without a wing or a leg, hobbling around the edges of the pack. Soon there were more victims. She picked up their lifeless little bodies and placed them in separate plastic freezer bags, zip-locking the tops. She laid them in a shoebox side by side and buried them out in the pasture. It made her look at her flock differently, suspiciously. There were murderers among them. The light pecking at her toes at feed time became a horrible sensation. 
Would they peck at her eyes if she were to stumble and fall into their midst? She began to listen for them as she lay in her bed at night. Would they wonder where the feed was kept? Would they dig with their little feet an escape tunnel beneath the chicken wire? Would they come scratching at the door? All the while, they continued to grow at an alarming rate, leaving behind the carcasses of those who couldn't keep up, their bodies bloodied, their eyes gouged out. She tried to get a hold of Sterling at his office, but the temporary receptionist, an unfamiliar voice, told her he was unavailable and would be for a few days. Finally, she had had enough. This wasn't fun anymore. In fact, it had become creepy, and far removed from the English country garden of her dreams, she called Maddie. No, he couldn't take them back, he said, but if she could wait a few more weeks, they'd be almost ready for slaughter anyway, and then she could call Kate Morton, the butcher, to come and do the deed. Mary Lynn was not sure she could wait. When she called Kate, she was told it would be a shame to slaughter them so early. But Kate herself would try to find someone who could take the chickens off her hands until they were marketable. That night, there was no answer at the condo, so Marilyn left a message asking Sterling please to call her as soon as possible. Marilyn waited two days and then called Kate Morton again. No, she hadn't found anybody to take a hundred chickens, not even for free. But the birds could be slaughtered early if that's what Mary Lynn wanted. They wouldn't have a lot of meat on them, but she could freeze them for stews, and they'd make good soup, of course. So last Thursday, Kate came over in her Mazda pickup, Morton's poultry service painted merrily on the side, with the head of a happy chicken up in the corner near the cab. Kate was not a large woman, but she walked with the square gait of a man like she meant business, dirty business. In her hooded sweatshirt and black rubber apron and gloves, swinging a hatchet in her hand, she looked like she could be some crazed killer from a B-grade movie. Mary Lynn said from the door that she was not sure she could watch. Kate said it would lower the price considerably if she could help out a bit. Mary Lynn thought about it. But it was not the price that persuaded her to participate in the slaughter. As she walked with Kate over to the run and she looked down upon the doomed flock, the full burden of her decision fell heavily upon her. She had nurtured these little creatures into the world, even the murderous ones who, after all, were only acting from instinct, not out of any evil intent. She should see it through to the end. Kate got to work. She had a swift and efficient method, the result of years of experience in her line of work. She first smacked a bird upside its head with the broad side of the hatchet, stunning it. Then she grabbed it by the throat, scooped it up and swung it round once in the air until the neck cracked. The bird landed hard on the chopper block and whack, off came its head. The operation took all of five seconds. Mary Lynn's job was to tie the feet with wire and carry the headless carcasses to the shed where they were to be hung from the rafters and drained. This would make the plucking easier when Kate came back with a small work crew in the afternoon. The killing went on through most of the morning. Kate kept up a running commentary on anything that came into her head, the unseasonable weather, the kind of people she didn't like, the spectacular spill at last night's monster truck rally. But Mary Lynn wasn't listening, and in any case, couldn't have responded. A dry lump had lodged itself in her throat. Tears blurred her vision as she picked up the twitching carcasses. Every time the hatchet came down, she thought she was going to be sick. 
By the end of the morning, a hundred chickens were hanging lifeless in the shed, their blood collecting in pools on the earthen floor and running in small rivulets into the shadows. Kate went for lunch, and Mary Lynn was left alone with the bodies, beside herself with horror and grief. All her hopes, all her best intentions, and this was the result. It felt like an omen. She thought about Sterling, unavailable now for three days. From a deep inner place, too dark for words, an aching realization began to surface. That's when she called Father David. She was not a churchgoer, so she didn't know who she was calling exactly, nor did she know what to ask. But his voice sounded like solace to her, and she broke down and sobbed into the phone. He reassured her it was all right. Now, what was it she wanted? Technically, there is no funeral service for chickens. But Father David will think up something. He's pretty resourceful. Then he'll have his pastoral work cut out for him as he gets to know Mary Lynn and draws her into the fold. Maybe there'll be someone new to help out with the hog fest now. The merry widows have been complaining that it's always the same ones who do the work, and they've done it all for years. They've buttered the buns, diced the cabbage, sliced the ham, simmered the soup, set the tables, and collected the five dollars from every adult who sat down to the feast. It adds up. But it's time some of the young ones pitched in. They'd be more than willing to show Mary Lynn how it's done. And when that fog on blows I will be coming home And when that fog on blows I want to hear it I don't want to fear it And I want to rock your gypsy soul I've been reading from my book, How the Light Gets In, a collection of short stories. I'll be rolling out two stories a week in the Mystic Cave through the summer months, and then returning to an interview format come the fall, when we'll be turning our attention to views of death and dying on the other side of Churchland. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too late to stop now. It's too late to stop now.